morning. Welcome to Adult Sunday School. As you can tell, I'm here teaching, so we're not having a baptism service. Um, that was our original plan, but we didn't have anyone to baptize, so we decided to continue on with our series in Jesus' parables. And today, we're going to start looking at Luke 15, which is going to be the bulk of our teaching over the next few weeks. Um, and so today, we'll introduce kind of give the context, the introductory verses. We'll look at those in detail, look back a little bit at the uh, previous chapter in Luke 14, and then also spend some time defining some terms, and then we'll get into the parables next time. Um, but those of you that haven't been with us, we have spent the last two weeks introducing the parables. Um, the first week, we defined the term parable saying that it is a story that places one thing beside another for the purpose of teaching. That's what Jesus is doing. He's teaching. He's giving parables to solidify his teaching. It puts the known next to the unknown so that we might learn. Remember, these parables all seem to come from common life, kind of like Dan was talking about earlier, the terms of shepherding and sheep. As he's talking about in John 10, the parables serve a similar purpose. Last week, though, we talked about uh, the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils, and we saw that there was a twofold purpose to Jesus' teaching in parables, and that was to say that both the parables were to do two things, both to reveal truth to those that have the ears to hear, and then conceal truth to those who do not have the ears to hear. You can download that on the app and listen to that for a further explanation of that if you'd like. Don't tell me how I sound on the app, though. That terrifies me. Um, this week, we're going to look into Luke 15, and that's going to be where we stay for the next several weeks. Of course, we know that Luke 15 is the place where Jesus' most, probably most famous parable is found, which is the parable of the prodigal son, or the parable of two sons. But we also see the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and today we'll set a good theme for what all that is. But if you could turn in your Bibles for a minute, go to Romans 5, and we're going to read and then pray. We're going to read Romans 5, verses 6 through 11. Because really, Luke 15 is about God's mission to save sinners. And that's what we'll read here about what our condition is prior to Christ here in Romans 5, verse 6, and we'll read through verse 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you, Lord, and we are humbled that you, as 
that you came to us and you revealed yourself and you reconciled us to God the Father while we were not your friends, Lord, not desiring, Lord, to have close acquaintance with you and to relate to you, but while we were sinners and enemies, Lord. Lord, those are terms that are, there's a dividing line there that's so great, and that reveals to us the great mercy and grace that you showed to us in saving us. And Lord, that was at the risk of your life. Lord, you gave your son Christ for us so that we could be reconciled to you. And Lord, what a great, great gift that is to us, and we give you praise for it. And Lord, as we look, Lord, at chapter 15 of the blessed gospel of Luke, Lord, I pray that we too would see the great cost that salvation is for us. And Lord, also that we would see the reality that God, that you rejoice when sinners come to you. Lord, that that heaven is full of joy when sinners embrace the gospel. Lord, may that be our heart's cry too as we become faithful and more faithful in speaking your word and evangelizing. Lord, I pray that our heart's cry would be like that of heaven, Lord, that we would see the great joy that exists when sinners come to you. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time, increase our worship and our love for you because of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so turn, please, to the Gospel of Luke. I'm just going to give you, anytime I open up a, a new set of Scripture, I like to get an idea of what this book is about, what is the overall theme, what is the, where is what our main topic is today, where does it fit in the overall story of Luke. In Luke 15, it really is a central point in part of the Gospel of Luke. Um, so, f- obviously, the book of Luke is written by Luke. Um, also, Luke wrote the book of Acts, so it's kind of a twofold um, work that he wrote. Um, and it's written by Luke, who is a close companion of the Apostle Paul. Paul, at one point, refers to himself as the Apostle to the Gentiles, which is interesting because Luke really places an emphasis on those outside of Israel more than Matthew and Mark do when you start looking at the three synoptic gospels. And we can see that in Luke 15 especially. Um, His emphasis is on the global salvation message of Christ. He emphasizes Christ's ministry more so than those other authors um, to the outcast, to the sinner, to the tax collector, to non-Jews, and to women. So that's the big theme in Luke, and we're going to break that down a little bit when we get to Luke 15. There are four major sections in Luke. Got this in your handout. If you don't have one, James has them. Four major sections in Luke. Chapters 1 through through, uh, chapter 4, 13 is the prologue and Jesus' pre-ministry. So this is where you get Luke has a very exhaustive description of Christ's birth in coming to the world. You have the John the Baptist uh, parts. You have the parts where John the Baptist is born and the promise of the angels to both his parents and to Joseph and Mary. That's the first part. The second part is Jesus' initial ministry in Galilee. So we'll call that the Galilean ministry. And that's 4.14 through 9.50. 
The, second, the third section is where we are in Luke 15 is his Judean ministry. And that is 951 through 1927. And then the close of the chapter, which is 1928 and following, is Jesus in Jerusalem. And it's his passion, his, life, his, his death, his resurrection. So let's start by looking at Luke 9, 51. If you could turn there for me. So like I said, this is, this is Jesus' in chapter 9 through almost verse chapter 20 is Jesus' Judean ministry. But he has a mission here. Chapter 9, verse 51, excuse me. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So from this verse forward, Jesus has moved from Galilee. Some of the people in Galilee rejected him. Some received him. And now he's going on his way to Jerusalem. The ultimate end here is that he's going to go to Jerusalem and give his life as a sacrifice. Um, That's not to say for the next ten chapters he doesn't go to Jerusalem at all. Because he does. He goes at different times to observe feasts. But he's not, he has not gone to Jerusalem for his permanent uh, accomplishment, his permanent mission to save sinners until the end of this section. You can see also in Luke 12.50 what Jesus' mission is. This is kind of in the middle of a section where Jesus is talking about that he comes... Um, to divide. He's that fork in the road. Are you going to choose me? Are you going to choose the world? But in verse 50, this is what Jesus is going to do. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So Jesus is distressed until he accomplishes the work that God has called him to do in Jerusalem. If you look at Luke 19.28 at the conclusion of this section, we can see that there's a clear demarcation of section here. This is the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And it says, And when he had said these things, the previous ten chapters, his teaching, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has the triumphal entry. He's going to have the, it's the week of the Passion and the week of the Passover but what, can we, what do we know about chapters 9 through 20? It's, a, it's 10 chapters, pretty much. Um, parts of 9 and parts of 20, or parts of 9 and 19 are part of this section. Um, but this is the bulk of Jesus' teaching ministry. So the bulk of Jesus' teaching ministry in the Gospel of Luke is found here. And in this section, there are 20 parables alone. Okay, so Luke has seen it fit through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to have a good portion of Jesus' teaching right here. Interestingly enough, chapter 15 is right in the middle of that. And it's interesting that God, through the Holy Spirit, inspiring Luke to write this, would have Jesus's, it's almost like Jesus' teaching comes to a crescendo in chapter 15, and we can, we'll talk about that going forward. But first, before we get into chapter 15, let's look at chapter 14. 
just for brief review. We don't want to just dive into 15 not knowing what's happened before. Um, I will point out something very interesting. In chapter 15, first of all, look, one of the main things we're going to point out today is that the Pharisees grumble against Jesus because he's dining with sinners and tax collectors. Chapter 14, verse 1 says, One Sabbath, this is about Jesus, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Jesus was dining with the Pharisees, too. Okay, let's remember that. Okay, I think it's, it's an interesting comparison and contrast that Jesus is dining both with sinners and with the Pharisees, okay, who are also sinners. They don't see themselves as sinners. Um, so that's the chief complaint that the Pharisees have, though, against Jesus is that he's not only associating with sinners, but he's also dining with them. However, it's not like he neglected to dine with the Pharisees either. Um, So he did not avoid association with either the sinners or the religious leaders. And it was Jesus' goal to expose their self-righteousness. These religious leaders, however, were quite manipulative. Now, Jesus had a holy reason for dining with them. Theirs might have been different. As you see in verse 2, it says, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, And Jesus responded, remember, this is the Sabbath, and Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So the next point, it's kind of odd that these Pharisees would have a person that's ill with dropsy in their midst. It's not normal for them. They don't associate with unclean people, especially at dinner, at supper time. We'll get into that in pretty good detail coming up. But it's almost like this guy was invited only for the purpose of seeing what Jesus would do with this man. So we talked about, I think John, it's John 6 that Dan spent a lot of time in, that Jesus was healing the man on, healed the man on the Sabbath. It's interesting that this keeps coming up, that, that they want Jesus, there's, Jesus is put in a position to make a decision if it's okay to heal on the Sabbath, and he did that. He, he heals the man. If you read in verse 4, it says, but they remained silent. So they didn't answer Jesus' question. So Jesus just went ahead and took him and healed him and sent him away. And then this is Jesus' explanation to them, saying that they're good law keepers on the Sabbath, but what do you guys do on the Sabbath when someone, there's a need? He says in verse 5, and he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen to a well on the Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Well, this guy's suffering here. I had the ability to heal him. It's the Sabbath, but I'm going to heal him. Verse 6, and they could not reply to these things. So the Pharisees are kind of, their goal here is to put Jesus in a compromising position. And Jesus is just, of course, going to do the right thing. He heals the man to expose their true hearts and who they are. So that's the first thing he does in chapter 14. And then he goes on and tells a parable about the great banquet or the great supper. Um, and the key verses here are, instead of reading the whole thing, are, chapter, are verses 21 and 22. And what happens is the, the, this, the parable about the, this supper is the, the man, the very respected man, invites a bunch of people who don't show up. They give a bunch of excuses why they can't show up. And in verse 21 he says to his servant, This is the story. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. 
Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. Meaning is, I've invited you, distinguished guests, friends of mine, but you didn't come. I'm going to the outcasts of society now to invite them in. In verse 22, And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servants, Now go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And this is an illustration of who God is. God pursues those who are the outcasts, those who are not righteous in their own mind. Interesting, too, there is still more room for people to be saved. That's the point of the the message. God's grace is more willing to save sinners than sinners and themselves are desiring to be saved. And there's a shift in verse 25 to him talking only to the Pharisees that he was dining with. And it says, now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned to them and said, speaks another, he's now talking to the multitude. These are the people that are attracted to Jesus, that want to hear what he's saying. In 26 and 27, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So he says to the multitude, this is the true cost of discipleship. This isn't some kind of milquetoast appeal to salvation. He's not softening it for them. He's appealing to them that if you want to follow me, you have to, you have to lose everything, okay? So it's not like Jesus in his appeal for people to come to him to be saved doesn't lessen um, the call of discipleship. He didn't make it easy for them to respond to the gospel. He didn't say, come to me because I can provide you healing and I can provide you money and finances and peace and comfort. He says, it's going to cost you things. You have to be separate from your parents and your, your land and your houses and to your brothers and sisters. So he outlined the commitment that his true followers would exhibit. And he says in verse 33, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So we can't forget that when we enter chapter 5, or chapter 15. So Jesus not only was speaking to the multitude, but the religious leaders were still gathered there. When he, and then he closes the chapter again with that interesting phrase that we talked about last week at the end of verse 35, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he's saying that again, and who has ears to, to hear? That brings us to chapter 15. So I hope that has set in mind for you where we're going. Chapter 15, before we start reading it, let me go ahead and give you a couple points. The primary message of this section of Scripture is to reveal God's joy when the lost are found. This is the priority of heaven. God rejoices when sinners repent and come to him. That's what we will see. If you look at each of the parables listed here, verse 7, first of all, this is the parable of the lost sheep, and we'll spend a lot of time in these next few, obviously these parables in the next few weeks, but let's just look at a couple of verses. Verse 7, 
So this is after the shepherd has found the sheep. He says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Joy in heaven at repentance. Verse 10, after the lost coin and the woman finds the coin and rejoices with her neighbors. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So joy in heaven. When someone comes to know Christ, there is rejoicing in heaven. And then verse 24, which I can't wait to get to, to talk about for a long period of time. So this is after the prodigal has returned and the father responds, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. There's one translation that says they made merry. So there's not just joy, but it's expressed joy. People are excited. The angels and God the Father and the Trinity are rejoicing in heaven when sinners come to him. How amazing is that? And how amazing is it that we get to participate in presenting the reality of the gospel to a lost world? And do we, this is the application for the day, and we'll probably revisit this again, do we rejoice in the hope of the gospel and what it does to bring sinners to repentance? Does that joy drive us to, to tell? And for me, personally, no. I need to do more, and I need to proclaim him more. And if I really was motivated by the joy of heaven, how much would that change what I do? That's the application. That's the theme of chapter 15. Not only does he rescue sinners, he rejoices in jubilant celebration. He parties when just one is rescued into the kingdom. God is by nature a savior, and by saving sinners, he experiences great joy. We should consider the fact that one of God's communicable attributes, attributes that we can share with him, is joy. And this is evident throughout the whole Bible. Let's do, how much time do we have? We have plenty of time. Let's look at a few Old Testament verses. Look at Psalm 51, I think it's 12. This is David's repentant chapter Psalm 51:12 David cries out to the Lord restore to me the joy of your salvation so there's joy in the salvation of God some of these are real short so you might not have to follow with me Deuteronomy 30:9 and 10 For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you. This is his promise to his people. He will again take delight in prospering you. For as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, when you obey the Lord, it brings great delight. That's joy, the satisfaction in God. Isaiah 62. I'm, you're, you're flipping all over the Old Testament here, but that's okay. And next we're going to Zephaniah if y'all want to try to find that. 
Isaiah 62 is talking about Israel's coming salvation. Verse 3, you shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her. In your land married, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Okay, so much rejoicing and joy in the Lord. Uh, Zephaniah, this is the, I think, third or fourth last chapter in the Old Testament. So how does that help you? Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let your hands grow weak, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So think of that, the joy that God has for his people. And the other thing I think it's important to realize, the opposite of that is true as well. In Ezekiel, the Lord says, um, the prophet Ezekiel says this about the Lord, that God has no joy in the death of the wicked. So think about that too. His joy is found in salvation, but there is no joy in the death of the wicked. All right, let's look at the New Testament. Turn to Romans 14. Start with that. So once again, we're trying to show the priority of joy in the Father. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So there's a close relationship to being a part of the kingdom and there being joy. Verse, chapter 15, verse 13 so what does this look like? What, is, what, what does the Holy Spirit do in indwelling the saved? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Jesus' high priestly... Ah, easy for me to say. John seventeen thirteen. Jesus' high priestly prayer. He says... But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So what Jesus is doing is to fulfill the joy of the Lord. And then Hebrews 12, 2. Last one for a second. And this is, what, this is why Jesus did what he did. Let's start with verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. So it's for the joy of seeing sinners saved that he endured great suffering to accomplish salvation for them. So that's point one, that there's joy in heaven when sinners repent. The second point, though, I think in Luke 15 is important, is, let's see where we are on the notes here. Okay, secondary message is that Jesus is in direct contrast, his love for sinners is in direct contrast to how the Pharisees treated sinners, them. Jesus' desire to seek and save the lost stands in direct opposition to how the religious leaders treated sinners. These religious leaders said they knew God. They didn't understand God's desire to save the lost. They did not know the heart of God. I'm going to go to Isaiah 29, 13, but you don't have to go there real quick. But these leaders were evidenced by this prophecy. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. So that's what these religious leaders were. They, did, they spoke that they knew God, but they didn't know the true heart of who God was. They were hypocrites in their hypocrisy. In their hypocrisy, they did not reach out to sinners. Big theme there for chapter 15. So now let's spend some time talking about the first three verses. So let's read those. This is, um, be, this is before Jesus starts teaching, and this is the narrative so remember, we have, in chapter 14, we have Jesus um, dining with the Pharisees and then turning to multitudes that had gathered and taught them as well. And here, the last part of 14, he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he says in 15, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And then verse 3 says, so he told them this parable, so he begins to teach. So who are these people that Jesus, that are drawn to him? Um, so he said at the end, he's given a hard discussion, right? He's talking about what it's going to cost to follow him. What is the true nature of discipleship? And the tax collectors and the sinners draw near to him. Interesting that they're not turned off by the hardship of the gospel message that Jesus preached. Um, but instead, they were drawn to him. Who are these tax collectors? I think we know who, those of us that are familiar, we know that Matthew himself was a tax collector, and Jesus had called him. Um, but tax collectors in the Jewish culture were viewed as traitors and extortionists of the Jewish people. They sided with the uh, unfriendly Roman occupiers. They owned tax franchises and extorted money um, from the Jewish people. So they were seen as enemies of the people at the time. They helped the Romans in the administration and occupation of the area, um, and the Jews did not like them. 
They were the lowest of the low, mainly because they were betraying their people. Um, And like I said, Matthew was a tax collector. And that must have angered the Pharisees and the law keepers um, because Jesus offered forgiveness to one as low as Matthew, and he led his life and followed Jesus, left his life and followed Jesus. And that, but it also says in the text that not only were tax collectors, collectors gathering, but sinners were as well. Who are these sinners? I mean, we're all sinners, right? The Pharisees are sinners, right? But they had a particular view of who these people were. These were people of bad reputation. They're the riffraff of society. These are people that didn't even try to live according to the law and the standards that the Pharisees and the religious elite had set forth. These people were so bad in the eyes of the uh, religious leaders, they weren't even allowed in the synagogues. The Pharisees took the regulation of not associating with an ungodly man as they read the Old Testament, and they believed then that they were prohibited from interacting with these people at all even in the case of teaching them the law. So how are these people going to hear the law if the leaders, the shepherds of Israel, were not going to teach them the law? But they did not associate with them at all. They really took, you know, Psalm 1, you know, not to sit in the path of the the scoffer and different texts to an extreme in the sense that they did not even want to associate with these people. So just consider that. Consider you're a sinner someone on the outside of society, not part of the religious elite or close to their family or their friends, and you have no one ministering to you. So let's just imagine that. And here comes Jesus, not shying away from ministering to them. You would be, to some degree, attracted to Jesus because he's actually choosing to teach to you, right? Um, and I think it's very odd that those who were responsible for shepherding and leading the people of God, the, the God's chosen people, did not even minister to these people. So these people were really without any hope because the Word of God was not even presented to them. The shepherds were not even associating themselves with the sheep at all. One quote from one commentator says this, so just bear with me, it's pretty lengthy, but I think it lays out what the Pharisees believed about these sinners. The Pharisees gave to people who did not keep the law a general classification. They called them the people of the land. And there was a complete barrier between the Pharisees and the people of the land. The Pharisaic regulations laid it down. When a man is one of the people of the land, entrust no money to him, take no testimony from him, trust him with no secret, do not appoint him guardian of an orphan. Do not make, the custody, the, make him the custody, custodian excuse me, of charitable funds. Do not accompany him on a journey. A Pharisee was forbidden to be the guest of any such man or to have him as his guest. He was even forbidden so far as it was possible to have any business dealings with him. It was the deliberate Pharisaic aim to avoid every contact with the people who did not observe the petty details of the law. The strict Jew said, the strict Jew said not, there will be joy in heaven over one sinner who is obliterated before God. So no desire to minister to the sinners. And that's what Jesus came to do. 
to seek and to save the lost. Undoubtedly, these people saw Jesus and saw how much differently Jesus treated them compared to how the Pharisees did. Jesus was the friend of sinners. And these verses reveal how differently God views sinners from how the Pharisees did. However, this is one of the main reasons that Jesus received opposition from the Pharisees. Let's look at several verses in the Gospels that that pinpoint that. First in Luke, go to chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. You'll see the same word that they grumbled and complained. Chapter 5, verse 29, And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And then Jesus' answer to them was, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call the righteous. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Two other occasions it's recorded. If you can write these down, we don't need to go there because they're very similar. It's almost like Mark, Matt, Mark, Matthew, and Luke are recording the same story in Matthew 9, 10 through 11, and then Mark 2, 15 and 16. He identifies the fact that the Pharisees were grumbling and complaining by the fact that Jesus was entertaining associations with sinners. And Jesus said to them that he came to heal the sick, not those who are righteous in themselves, but those that see their spiritual need for him, not those that saw that they didn't need him as their shepherd. If you go to Matthew eleven eighteen and 19 as well, this is a gro- there's growing hostility throughout the ministry of Jesus, the fact that he associates with sinners. This is turning the whole religious system upside down for them. The fact that Jesus is relating with sinners, and they weren't doing it. The Pharisees weren't. Matthew eleven eighteen, and this is interesting because this is what the Pharisees accused Jesus of because he was relating with sinners. It says, first of all, for John, this is John the Baptist, came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. And then the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So they, not only did they despise Jesus for it, they accused him of being a sinner himself, being a glutton and a drunkard because of his association with them. And if you go to Matthew 21, 31 through 32, This is the second half. They said, this is the story of the two sons and which one did the will of the father. And Jesus, in his explanation, says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. This gets really alarming for the Pharisees. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And when when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So not only is he befriending 
the tax collectors and the sinners. He's saying that they have a greater entrance into the kingdom of heaven than these law keepers do. And what ultimately the Pharisees refused to do was accept the fact of what Jesus' ultimate mission was, which we can see in Luke 19.10. His mission, and they refused to accept it, and this is in the story of Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector. Look at verse 9. This is what Jesus says to Zacchaeus. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So the lost, the mission of Jesus is to seek out and save the lost. And that infuriated the Pharisees. So turn back to chapter 15. So that gives us an idea of who these tax collectors and sinners are. And they drew near to Jesus. They were relating to Jesus, unlike the Pharisees related to the sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. We get to talking about another literary device here, guys. That's real exciting. We've talked about metaphor and allegory and all that stuff. Grumbling is... This is the best of the literary devices, is onomatopoeia. If you guys remember what that is, it's like words that sound like what they, words sound like what they mean, I think. So words like boom, bang, bam mean explosion or something like that. But this is grumble, it's murmuring. In the Greek, it means murmuring. It's all they're doing is murmuring. They're like whispering about themselves. Hey, you know, this guy, he receives these sinners. And that's the reality of what Jesus was doing So they grumbled about it, they complained, they murmured, probably under their breath to some degree, but they had known, they'd let their feelings be known to Jesus before about the fact that they were frustrated with the fact that he received sinners. And maybe there was some conviction there because they didn't receive sinners. Um, But there was definitely a play to subvert the authority that they had. Um, Interesting, though, the fact that the Pharisees were so consumed with the fact that Jesus was eating and dining with these sinners. They, the Pharisees loved to eat, and they loved to have rules about eating. They had specific traditional teaching about what they ate, how they ate, when they ate, and with whom they ate. And they took God's law and embellished it, adding, along, adding layer after layer of human tradition in order to become, quote-unquote, more righteous. So they found Jesus' acceptance of sinners at the meal table especially offensive. Um, they, of course, did not want to associate with sinners. They took Scriptures like Psalm 1 and Proverbs 15.1 15, about not association, associating with a godly man to an extreme that they should be completely separate from sinners. The same they took with Isaiah 52.11, being separate from sinners in a way that they would not even relate to them. The, the Pharisees, ha- they, they had so many rules about eating, a couple of them that are interesting. They would not eat any food of which had not been tithed from, okay? So, like, if they had nine, if they had ten beans, they'd eat nine, until, unless they knew for sure that the tenth one had been tithed on. There's the whole part where Jesus is talking about them tithing the small little herbs, you know, like the mint and the, I don't know what the other ones were, anus and stuff like that. 
and he didn't, he's talking about that because they took the small things, the minute things, and tithed on that and saw that that was the most important thing for, for them to do. They dwelt in the minute, in the minutiae of things, instead of the big picture. They were so worried about hitting the particular details of the law and adding layers to that law and keeping it that they missed the big picture of what God was, God's goal was to do through Christ. Um, they believed that they couldn't even be in the same room with one of these outsiders or sinners while a meal was going on. Um, interesting enough, though, in chapter 14, they did have the man with dropsy there to try to manipulate Jesus. So it was only as far as they did it for their own benefit. Um, there was also the Old Testament law that you shouldn't cook meat in milk. Man, well, I guess they didn't have gravy, first of all. That's really sad. But if someone was dining, they were dining with someone, and they had somebody was eating meat, and somebody across the table was drinking a good cold glass of milk, I'm sure it wasn't too cold, they would see that as being uh, unpure, impure, and they would, they would not associate with those people because they thought that that defiled their minds because that law was not being observed in their presence. Think about that. Think about how many occasions you're thinking of things that you would fail in keeping the law according to the Pharisees. That's how seriously they took mealtime. And the mere fact that Jesus was associating with sinners and having eating with them just scared the pants off them. It made them go crazy. So that's the scene for chapter 15 here. That's the, that's the scene that's been set here before us, that Jesus has really infuriated the Pharisees in the sense of his acceptance of uh, sinners and the tax collectors, the lowest of society. So, maybe now we should get into the parables, but we're not going to have time for that. So, let's just do a brief summary of the parables, and we'll talk about each of them starting next week. You remember each of these parables, as you see here, there's three of them. They all have a story, a story that's relatable. And I've said this a couple times already, but I think it's important for us to ingrain this in our thinking when we come to the parables. In each of these stories, there's an ethical dilemma that would draw in both the Pharisees and the sinners that are hearing it. There's also a theology. What is this story, what does this parable tell us about the kingdom of God, right? Most of the parables are pointing to the kingdom of God. And at this point, this is where conviction would set in to those that would hear, who had the ears to hear. And this is the point where in, mo- in these parables in chapter 15 reveal how distant the Pharisees are from the true heart of God. And there's also in these parables a Christology, and this is where Jesus is, where Christ is in the story. These three parables talk about three things that are lost, a sheep, coin, and a son. These all represent the sinner. They're gospel parables, invitations to salvation. Interestingly enough, not each of them on their own are not a comprehensive uh, theology of salvation. There are parts that we'll have to fill in some gaps there, but if you take them as a whole, it is a lot more comprehensive, so we need to have an idea of what all three of these say. Um, Their goal isn't, though, to give us a comprehensive view of salvation, but their purpose is to reveal God's joy in the rescue of the lost. That's what chapter 15 is all about. 
interesting, interesting as well is that one, it kind of goes from the a lot of stuff to lesser. One story involves a hundred sheep. The next does ten coins and the last two sons. And the characteristics we can see of the sheep, just briefly, is that it's dumb and helpless. The coin is soulless and inanimate. And the son is rebellious and wicked. And in each way, those illustrate the condition of the lost sinner. So next week, we're going to talk about the first two, both the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and then the, the following weeks we will tackle the parable of the prodigal son. That is all I have for you today. I will pray, and then we will be dismissed. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, and we praise you that we are, as believers, Lord, get to participate in the joy of heaven when sinners repent and come to you. Lord, that you have given us the great opportunity, Lord, to be your messengers to a lost world. And Lord, I pray that as we even looked at the first few chapters of this and the theme of this chapter, Lord, that we would see the joy of heaven when sinners come to you. And I pray, Lord, that that would propel us and motivate us to be greater, uh, effective, more effective, um, consistent proclaimers of the gospel. Lord, um, what a great opportunity that is for us. And we get to share in that by your grace. And Lord, we do rejoice and worship you because you saved us. Lord, that you called out us as sinners and as your enemies, Lord, to be saved. And you did that through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and we give you praise for that. Lord, bless this day. Bless the time that we have together, fellowshipping one with another and worshiping you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.